For those of you who don't know, uh, my wife and I just had our second baby uh, this week. Yeah, it's a good thing. So if I pass out in the middle of this sermon, you know why. You, you know why, just leave me alone and I'll be okay. Um, so I actually made me think, you know, when, what we were doing during our holiday on July 4th was just uh, cursing our neighbors for setting off fireworks and waking up our children. Um, it's amazing how things change uh, with kids. But uh, thank you for the congrats, uh, healthy baby, and we're doing great. Thank you. So if you were with us the last few weeks, you know uh, we started kind of a new mini-series as we, as we journey through the Bible in a year on the prophets of the Bible. And this morning, you just heard read, we're, we're talking about the prophet Jeremiah. And we wanted to focus on this passage in particular, Jeremiah 29, uh, for two reasons. The first is that this is at the very heart. Someone's excited about this. Um, the first is that it's at the very heart of who we want to be uh, at Christ's community, this passage. Uh, but second is that Jeremiah's times are so much like our times. And Jeremiah, in this text that was just read this morning, he's writing to a group of people. He's writing to a group of Jews who, are, uh, in, who find themselves in a foreign land in Babylon, who have little to nothing in common with their surrounding culture. They are exiles in a foreign land where people don't think or act or believe or worship the way that they do. And uh, when, as, we, as we encountered them this morning, they are really in a state of, of culture shock. If you've ever experienced culture shock. I was thinking about uh, my own experiences of, of culture shock in my life. And, and actually probably the most dramatic one and long-lasting one in my life was when I moved from California to Indiana uh, for college. And I still remember, uh, I, I went there, I moved there in August for, you know, freshman orientation or whatever. And I remember uh, one of the first mornings there, I, I, I got up and left the dorm to go to some orientation, I don't know what it was. And there was this insane buzzing sound outside. And it was like, right, it came in these nauseating waves, and it felt like it was never going to stop, and it was like it was all around me. I had no clue what it was. I literally thought the world was ending and uh, this, this, this guy next to me must have seen my face, and he said, oh, don't worry, that's just the cicadas. That's all that is. And I, I was like, am I on another planet right now? <laughs> I'd never heard that before. And, and it wasn't just um, the bugs that were different. It was the way people thought and, and even acted. And uh, I remember in my dorm, I, I finished a can of soda. And first of all, I, call it, I called it soda, not pop. But I finished this can of soda, and I looked at my friends, and I said, oh, where's the recycle bin? And they literally just laughed in my face. <laughs> and I think in that moment, I confirmed every stereotype they had of someone from California. But um, they laughed, and I just, I just felt like an idiot. And I was, in that moment, I was like, okay, I'm in a, I'm in a foreign land. Um, I don't quite fit in. Um, I wear flip-flops in the winter. I'm, I, I'm different than the people around me. Yeah, that wasn't that smart. But uh, you've probably had something like that in your own life, some kind of personal experience uh, where you felt like an outsider looking in on a completely different way of seeing the world. But more importantly than these kind of personal experiences we have is the fact that more and more people all around the world, including especially perhaps the United States, are living in a perpetual state of exile and culture shock like this. Uh, more and more people from all over the world are intermingling in a way that's never happened before. And we're finding that a few of us actually agree on some of the most fundamental questions of life, the more we interact. You know, questions like, uh, there's no consensus on questions about God's existence or what's right and wrong, 
or what the good life looks like and how someone uh, should get it. And this increasing pluralism, this is a technical word for that, this increasing pluralism gives us all the sense increasingly that we don't belong and that we aren't at home and that we're exiles. And you know this is true, at least in our country, uh, because everyone feels, every, no matter who you ask, everyone feels like their side is losing the, the quote-unquote culture war. Every side. And uh, Pastor Tim Keller illustrated it this way. He said, uh, liberal thinkers are pulling their hair out because they think this country is getting so darn conservative. But if you talk to a liberal thinker, or a conservative thinker, they're saying, no, no, this country is getting so liberal, I'm pulling my hair out, I can't stand it. And how can every side be right and wrong at the same time? <laughs> Well, it's because we're all increasingly feeling and living in a world where we feel like outsiders. There's just no, there's no consensus on answers to big questions anymore. We're an increasingly fragmented society. You've probably felt that. This is our experience right now in our context. It was the same in Jeremiah's day for the Jews in Babylon. As God's chosen people, they're living in a city that's hostile to them, to their values and their beliefs. And... and and both the Jews then at this time and Christians today and throughout history uh, must ask themselves, how do we respond to this? How do we live as spiritual outsiders in our world? How do we live as God's people in, in a society that fundamentally operates on a completely different basis than we do? How do we live in the city where God has placed us, whether that's Babylon or Kansas City or Overland Park or Leewood or Belton, wherever you find yourself? How do we, as spiritual exiles, how do we live with our surrounding culture in a way that honors God. And Jeremiah tells us how. And his answer must change the way we see everything we do. So if you haven't turned there, let's take a look at it. Jeremiah 29. Uh, it's in the middle of your Bible, uh, so open to the middle. Hopefully you're in Isaiah, and then just keep turning to the right. And uh, Jeremiah is right after the book of Isaiah. And Jeremiah is going to show us three things about how we live in our city, how we respond to our city. First, he's going to tell us how we shouldn't respond to the city. And he's going to tell us how we should respond to the city. And finally, he's going to show us why we should respond to it. So how we shouldn't, how we should, and why we should. But first, I'll give you just a little background on this passage that you just heard read. So in Jeremiah 29, it records a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent uh, to, in verse 4, it says, to all the exiles whom I, the Lord, have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, why are the Jews exiled to Babylon? Well, if you remember back in our history series, which was like a few months ago now, um, God warned his people, Israel, over and over and over again, mostly through the prophets like Jeremiah, that if they didn't stop worshiping other gods, if they didn't stop oppressing the poor in their own country, if they didn't stop ignoring their relationship with him, that he was going to send in a foreign nation to conquer them and remove them from their homeland. And uh, like I said, this was largely communicated through the prophets. And of course, we know that the Jews did not listen. And eventually, during Jeremiah's lifetime, this prophet's lifetime, around 600 BC, uh, Babylon invaded Jerusalem and forcibly removed many of the Jews to Babylon, their capital city, which was really one of the most important and influential cities in the ancient world at the time. So, so the people that Jeremiah is speaking to, these are people God, these are people who survived the invasion. These are people who survived the long trek to Babylon. And now they find themselves in a city that speaks another language, that worships other gods, that thinks, and, that, thinks that they, the Jews, and their customs are strange, and that, that see reality in a completely different way than they do. So what are they supposed to do? 
Well, first, like I said, Jeremiah tells them what not to do in Babylon. And really, there are a few things that the Jews aren't supposed to do. And basically what we see here, there are two basic strategies that any exile or foreigner can adopt to survive in a hostile city, in a foreign city. And God will tell the Jews to reject both of these strategies, and it's right, they're right here in the text. The first thing the Jews must avoid in how they interact with their city, and, and, and by extension, how Christians should not act toward our city, toward our culture, is assimilation. We cannot assimilate to the city. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, this, this was the strategy, assimilation, that the Babylonians were hoping the Jews would adopt. Many scholars have noted that the Babylonians, they, they basically perfected uh, this strategy of, of assimilating people into their culture and into their way of life. And as a big and powerful empire at the time, uh, Babylon had to deal with a lot of conquered people groups. They kind of went, that's what they did. They went around and they conquered other people. And I'm sure after a lot of experimentation, they found the uh, preferred method for how to deal with these conquered people. Because you can try to actively oppress and enslave a conquered people, but they just tend to get mad. And then that causes expensive problems like insurrection and rebellion and things like that. And you don't want to do that. So what they did instead was they assimilated you. They would move you out of your homeland. This is why they did this. They'd move you out of your homeland. And they'd put you into their city of power. Their most powerful city. And essentially, they would offer you everything in that city. They would offer you the best jobs, the best education, good salaries for your family, and it's all available to you, and all you have to do to get access to it is become just like them. That's it. Just become like the Babylonians in how you think and how you worship, and all these things can be yours. And the Babylonians knew that if they could get you to buy into this, or even just a significant percentage of your people group, if they could get you to buy into that, after a few generations, your people group would disappear forever. By the time your grandkids came along, they would be Babylonian through and through. And the system would take care of itself. Jeremiah says no to that strategy. This cannot be how the Jews respond to the city of Babylon. He says, don't assimilate. And he says, you see that hinted in verse 6. He says, multiply there and do not decrease. Multiply there, don't decrease. Don't lose your identity to the city, says Jeremiah. You're still my people, this is what God is saying. You're still my people, called to live and think and act in ways that honor and obey me. You're supposed to be different. The Jews cannot assimilate, as tempting an offer as that was for them, I'm sure. However, on the opposite extreme, the other strategy that they must avoid is they cannot separate from the city either. And this is the other way you can deal with the world. You can separate from it. And this was the preferred strategy of the false prophets that Jeremiah alludes to throughout his whole book. If you look down near the end of the chapter, you'll see, you'll see that Jeremiah is speaking out against Shemaiah as a false prophet. And earlier in his book, he'll speak out against other prophets who are claiming to speak for God to these exiles. Now, what are they saying? Well, essentially, these prophets are telling these exiles, listen, you're only in Babylon. We're only going to be here for a few years, tops. I'm not going to be here very long. And then God is going to judge the city. He's going to destroy the city, and we're going to go home. Therefore, separate from the city. Interact with it only when you have to. Use it to better yourselves in any way that you can, but don't be contaminated by it. Create your own institutions, your own ethnic networks, but avoid the city. Ignore the city. Despise the city, what these prophets were saying. And this strategy, when you think about it, kind of makes sense for a spiritual, zealous, religious group, right? I mean, if you can't agree with your broader culture, then 
separate from it. Get, make your own little home away from home and your own little enclave and, and get along that way. But Jeremiah says no. He says, you aren't going to be here for two years. You're going to be here for two generations. In verse 10, he says that they'll be, they, will be, they, will, they will be there for 70 years. 70 years. Which means that most of the people that are reading Jeremiah's letter are realizing, so you're saying, I'm, gonna, I'm never going to see Jerusalem again. I'm going to die here in Babylon. And Jeremiah is saying, yes. So get used to it. This is your new home. Don't separate from it. Live in it. So if we can't assimilate and we can't separate from the city, what is God's advice for us today? How should we respond to the city? And here's what God says. He says the starting in verse 5 of, our, of chapter 29. He says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, this would have been shocking for the Jews to hear at this time. Because essentially what God is asking them to do, he's saying, serve the heathens, serve the pagans, serve the murderers, the imperialists who came in and took your homeland, the Babylonians, your mortal enemies, serve them. And not in some superficial kind of way should you serve them. God says, seek their welfare or peace, is maybe what your version says. But um, the, this Hebrew behind this word welfare, peace is shalom. And uh, it's, it's, some, it's, it's, it's much more than peace or welfare. Shalom is more than just the absence of conflict or the presence of some kind of tranquility, which is how we usually understand those words. Shalom is flourishing, it's thriving, it's prosperity in every way, financially, socially, spiritually. God is saying, serve Babylon with everything you've got. And then and only then will you find the shalom you are looking for. In its shalom, you will find shalom. And now we begin to see that as God's people throughout history, whether the Jews of Jeremiah's day or Christians now, that we are called to live in the city we find ourselves in in a radically different way than most exiles do. Because you begin to see, if you think about it, that both assimilation, these two strategies, both assimilation and separation, which are the two basic strategies that people live in this world. You either accept this world or you reject it. But both of them are self-serving power plays. If you assimilate, you're doing so because you know that if you can't beat them, you join them. They have the power. So play by their rules and you might get some too. You can get the wealth of the city. You can make a name for yourself in the city. You can get the power of the city if you just play by their rules. It's a power play. And likewise, if you separate from the city, if you remove yourself from it, you're simply using it. You're using it to protect yourself and your family and your way of life. And you'll hate it when it prevails and you will rejoice when it fails. But essentially, you are grabbing as much power and security as you can with as little contact and as little investment as possible. In other words, both strategies, here's to sum it up, both strategies say, my shalom first. My needs, my tribe, my agenda first. But God says no. You will live, as my people, you will live by a completely different principle. 
City first. Others first. Those who are not like you first. Who think completely differently than you do first. Who have nothing to offer you first. And who do not even know or follow me first. And in this, when you do this right, if you dedicate your life to this, says God, you will find your shalom. Don't lose your identity to the city. Don't assimilate to it. Don't hide your identity in Christ from the city. Don't separate from it. Use your identity. Leverage your identity for the city. Be a faithful presence within the city because God loves the city just as much as he loves his people. God loves the city, the culture that we find ourselves in, the people group we find ourselves in. As much as he loves his people. That's why the story of the Bible is God sending his people into the city. If you read the Bible, that's the basic plot right there. And so often in our culture, in the conservative evangelical world, which that's me, that's probably most of us here, we live in a survival mode in the city. This is convicting for me this week as I prepared for this. We're in a state of panic that our rights or our opinions are not taken seriously enough as Christians, by those we perceive to be in power, that we are under attack and that we aren't going to make it another generation. Maybe you've heard some of those predictions. And listen, we are in no meaningful way under attack by our city or by our culture compared to the Jews in Babylon that we're studying, compared to the early Christians in Rome centuries ago, or Christians today all over the world. And yet they are not simply surviving, they're thriving. Why? Because they listen to Jeremiah. They learn from Jeremiah. They learn to seek the shalom of the city, and in that they are finding their shalom. God is saying here in the text, if we understand it rightly, that the church's job is not to survive. He will take, God will take care of that. The world, our city, does not need another survivor. Okay? It's got plenty of those. It's got plenty of people who are looking out for me and mine. What it needs is servants. Servants, don't survive. Serve. Seek the shalom of the city where God has put you. And folks, this this was radically changed the way we see our lives. You see, you can no longer have a career simply for your sake or for your family's sake. You have it for the city's sake. You have it to live to bring everyone up, not just the church, socially and financially and spiritually in Christ's name. And you no longer have a family just for your own enjoyment and pleasure and legacy. You do it to raise up children who serve and love the city and to deploy them into the world for the sake of the world. Do you see how different that is? Do you see the kind of exiles we're called to be? Are we living this way? Is this our vision for our lives in the city? I think a few diagnostic questions were helpful for me this week and, uh, to, to figure out where we are, where our hearts are. And, I, and these are not meant to guilt. Um, they're, meant to, to, they're meant to help assess where we are right now. And they'll be up on the screens as, as I read them and, and, and really think about them. Question one is, are, are, you, are we even present in the city where God has placed us? Are you present in the city where God has put you? Are you really there? Are you building homes and living in them and planting gardens like God is saying? For the Jews to do? Are you putting down roots or are you just thinking about what comes next? Are you just thinking about your next move? And I get it. We live in a, in a highly transient culture. Okay? People, most of the people in this room have, are probably not, we're not born in the city that they now live in. Okay? I'm the case in point. That's okay. 
But we, we have to be careful because we often don't get to know our neighbors or join in local leadership or serve in our communities because we don't think we're going to be there very long. Don't live that way. Don't live like you're renting the city. Live like you're owning it. Invest in it. Get to know the people in it. Be present within it. And I will, I will confess for pastors everywhere, and especially here at Christ Community, just because I'm a pastor on staff here, <laughs> that we are a part of the problem. Sometimes we ask you to be at church way too much. Okay? So this is a pastor telling you to get out. Right? You'll never hear that again. <laughs> I made sure Tom wasn't here. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> get out. Get into the city. Get into your neighborhood. Make relationships there. Get to know people there outside your tribe. In their shalom, you will find shalom. Are you present in the city? Is there room in your life for God to use you there? Okay, question two. Is the welfare of the city even a category in how you make life decisions? Is the welfare of the city, the shalom of the city, even a category in how you make life choices? We live in a very transient culture. We also live in a very individualistic culture. And uh, the church has really adopted this too. And we, we really assumed that the best possible decision you can make is the one that's best for you. We don't even question that, that principle anymore. We just do it. Uh, that's not at all what God is teaching us here. The common good is language we use around here. Uh, how your decision might affect the city, your community, not just you, must be a part of how we make our life decisions. And I remember when I was uh, living in Chicago, uh, Becca and I were involved in a, with a really a small church in the city, loved the city, it was a great, great church. And we were getting ready to move to Kansas to work here at Christ Community. I remember my pastor asking a very simple question to me, and he said, I know this move is good for you, and it's good for your career, but have you thought about whether it's good for this church or for this city? Did that even, he said, did that even factor in when you were making this choice? And I hadn't even thought about it. Hadn't even thought about it. Didn't even cross my mind. Now, even after prayer and thought there, Becca and I decided to move here. This was still best with our pastor's blessing. But in that moment, I was not seeking the shalom of my city or my community. I wasn't even thinking about it. When you make a career move or a school change, do you ever think about how it might affect the influence that you have right where you are? Could you turn down the well-paying job to be more effective in seeking the city shalom? Can you disenfranchise yourself, even just a little bit, for the sake of the city? Is that even a part of the discussion? Is that even on the table when you're thinking about this? All right, question three. Do you root for the city or do you root against the city? Do you root for it or do you root against it? When the city succeeds, do you rejoice? When, when God blesses it, do you give thanks to him? Do you look at the problems with your city and describe them as our problems or their problems? Is the Kansas City School District, for example... Your problem, or is it someone else's problem? When you think about the city, do you think in terms of us and we, or they and them? When your surrounding culture makes a bad decision, a decision that you know will probably result in harm, and it's perhaps even contrary to God's design, as you understand it, uh, are you saddened by that, or do you criticize it? Do you throw stones? And when the pain or loss or heartache that you knew would come does eventually follow that decision, do you feel grief or do you feel justified? 
Do you think about how you might bring shalom to the situation, or do you simply say, I told you so? You see, when your child makes a bad decision, or when someone you love, when someone you root for makes a mistake, you don't care about being right. You care about being there to help. Is that your posture toward the city, toward, toward our culture? Are you rooting for it, even if you don't always agree with it? Are you rooting for it, or are you rooting against it? And if you're like me, these questions, they have a little sting to them because we, have so much, we all have so much room to grow here as individuals and as a church. But this is where we want to go. This is who we want to be. This is who we want to be in our community. And we want to seek the shalom of our city. And this has always been the calling of Christians throughout history. Always. And in the second century uh, in Rome, a letter was written to a guy named Diognetus. And he was probably the tutor of Emperor Marcus Aurelius. So a pretty influential guy. And it was written during a time when throughout the Roman cities in the empire, Christians were viewed very skeptically. They were a new religion on the block and no one really knew what to do with them. And the letter was written to give Diognetus a vision for what made Christians unique in the Roman world. And here's what this letter said. It's a little long, but it's, it's just a powerful picture of what, of what these, these, citizens, these Christian citizens of Rome were like. While inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing and food and the rest of their ordinary conduct, so they didn't separate, they displayed to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They didn't assimilate. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time surpass the laws by their very lives. They love all men, and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are in lack of all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored and yet in their dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and yet they bless. And, and you see this, this ragtag group of people that are described here. They didn't assimilate to Rome. They didn't run away from it either. They served Rome. It's a historical fact. And you know what? The Roman Empire was transformed by it. It was not through violence or oppression or, even, or political savvy or economic power or wealth. It was simply through God's love on display through his people. And this is who we want to be. This is our calling. But how are we ever going to do it? How are we going to live out this? Because left on our own, we are assimilators, we're separators, or we're a little bit of both, depending on which is more profitable for us in the moment. How can we possibly love our city like this? And this is our final point, is why should we love the city like this? And the answer, believe it or not, is right here in Jeremiah, starting at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now we know this promise was not simply about a return to Jerusalem and ancient Palestine. This promise is for another city, another homeland. It's unlike the world has ever known. And the author of Hebrews, reflecting on all of these Old Testament figures who were looking for a homeland, who were exiles, and there's a lot of them in the Old Testament. He says this about them in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Another city's coming. A city that is truly our homeland. Why do we not need to grab power in the earthly city? Why, why should we give up our own rights, our own empowerment to serve despite our own needs and wants? Why should we disenfranchise ourselves for the sake of the city? Because our homeland is secure in Christ. That's why. It is untouchable. It is waiting for us. And someday it will be made known and visible to all the world. And every tongue and tribe and nation will be a part of the city. And every human culture in all its fullness and all of its beauty will be celebrating and worshiping the Lamb together in that city. It will be perfect shalom. That's the city we long for. That's the city we strive for. That's the city we're trying to bring into this world when we seek shalom. And the king of that city, the king of our homeland, he, when he came into the world, he did not assimilate to it. He challenged it. He called it out by what he said, by what he did. He, he used his power in a completely different way than the world could understand. And so we killed him for it. Nor did he separate from the world. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He was a friend of rejects and the sickest of the sick and the dirtiest of the dirty, the prostitutes and the thieves and the criminals, anyone and everyone that the earthly city is ashamed of and wants to forget and wants to ignore Jesus, blessed, touched, healed, and befriended. And yet he was not contaminated by it. He redeemed it. He transformed it. He gave his entire life for the shalom of the city. And we are free to be peacemakers because our peace, our flourishing, is secure in the one who promises to come again, who promises to put things right and promises a heavenly city right here on earth. So why are we sent into the city? Because Jesus was sent into the world. Why do we love the city? Because Jesus first loved us. And this makes us exiles of another kind altogether, doesn't it? Shouldn't it? But how quickly we forget. How quickly we assimilate to our city. Tomorrow's Monday. My guess is within the first hour of all of us getting up, we will all begin to long, that long fight that we fight every week, every day, to justify our existence through our jobs, through our parenting, through our schoolwork, or through our friends. We will so quickly be, buy into the lie of this world that the shalom we seek is not hidden in Christ, that it's hidden in our possessions or in our popularity or in our momentary pleasures. We forget. And that is why Jesus gave us communion. That's why he gave us the Lord's Supper. I'm convinced he knew that his disciples would forever struggle to remember who they are and who they serve. 
That is why at the end of the Lord's Supper, one of the last things Jesus says before he's executed is, do this in remembrance of me. Your world, your life, your sin will tempt you to forget. When you eat this bread and drink this cup, remember me. Remember, I am with you. I empower you. I send you into the world. Remember, I am coming again. Remember to love this city because I am making it new through you. And one day, everyone will see the work I am doing. Remember, don't forget. This is why we take communion here every month at Christ Community. There's nothing magical about the store-bought bread and the juice we're serving you. But there's something powerful about gathering together as a family as an alternate city within our city to remember who we are and why we serve. We need communion. Our city needs communion. Because if we forget who we are called to be, we will never love the city the way we're supposed to. And any follower of Jesus is welcome to the table here at our church. And if you believe Jesus by his death gives you a new identity, takes away your sin, gives you a new homeland forever, you are welcome to participate in this with us. There are stations all around the room. And uh, come in groups of five or six. This is a family affair. There are no strangers in Christ in this family. And remember, Christ did this in service to you. So serve this city with all your heart. Please come.